0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and
1: personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to a fresh trading week. You're watching Squawk Box and these are your headlines.
2: A minister resigns, a legal challenge mounts, but the UK Brexit Secretary, Steve Barclay, tells me exclusively that the government is working towards a deal, denying accusations that it's not making a real effort.
0: It's been going on for three years. We've already had two extinctions. Let's get this done, but it does require the commission not just to say in public that they will be creative and flexible, it also requires them in private to get into those discussions with us so we get this deal over the line
1: stocks across asia rise after beijing tries to stimulate its economy with a triple r cut while export data shows the trade war with the us is taking its toll khalid al-fali is out as saudi arabia's energy minister plus a warning for the world shipping industry from the u.s government Catch our exclusive interview with Sigal Mandelka at the World Energy Congress Forum.
3: We've exposed in these illicit shipping uh, networks and other actions that we've taken is that that oil is going to directly fund terrorist organizations. In this action, for example, we exposed that this is an oil for terror network going to the Quds Force uh, and to Hezbollah. Hong Kong protesters look to Donald Trump for support, calling on the US to help bring democracy to the region as demonstrations stretch into their 14th week despite the withdrawal of the controversial extradition bill.
1: The UK government is calling today's repeat vote on an early election the, quote, last chance for opposition parties. It comes after Amber Rudd quit the Cabinet After Brexit, or rather over Brexit, saying she no longer believes leaving the EU with a deal is Downing Street's main objective.
3: On the continent, France's foreign minister has suggested his country would veto an extension to Brexit in the current circumstances. Meanwhile, the Irish prime minister says he doesn't anticipate a big breakthrough in talks with Boris Johnson later today.
1: Uh, the uk's brexit secretary has told cnbc in an exclusive interview that the government is working on a deal and needs the eu to be flexible in its approach responding to amber rudd's accusations steve caught up with stephen barclay at the ambrosetti forum uh, he's with us now from como will it be an interesting day for many reasons steve not least because boris johnson has penciled in a meeting with leo varadka Today and um, this issue of the backstop remains a key issue that is blocking progress around these negotiations. What did Stephen Barclay have to say? You think that move things along?
2: Um, well, I think one thing that I think is very interesting that moves it along from my understanding of the situation is there was a whole host of issues at one stage, Jeff and Karen, good morning to you both, that the, the, the Democratic Unionists, the hard Brexiteers didn't like about the withdrawal bill. They didn't like being tied in on the uh, on a de facto customs union. They didn't like a lot of the close ties that stopped them going off in the world. But now, very interesting, Steve Barclay saying this just comes down to this one issue. We've stripped a lot of stuff away. We've We've stripped a lot of stuff we don't like away we've just brought it down to the one issue so i think it's very very interesting it does come down to this as well and of course as you mentioned leof radka the Taoiseach meeting the uk prime minister today, can they make progress uh, there are very limited expectations about that but just very briefly to say what else is going on prorogation could happen uh, as soon as today it will happen perhaps later in the week many people think thursday you've got going into law this uh, extension to the uh, october 31st date of course despite what the french foreign minister is saying as well that the the UK parliamentarians are saying that Boris Johnson has got to go to Brussels uh, and ask for this extension, whether they do or not. That's another issue which I address with Steve Barclay. Plus, you've got the government trying to get an, ex- an, an early general election again today in Parliament. That ain't going to happen as well, uh, because there's such a coalition of interest against that, not trusting the PM as well. But it's a very interesting conversation with Steve Barclay because it came literally just hours after Amber Rudd resigned. And I thought I was going to lose the interview, I'll be honest with you. You know how these things work. Big crisis happens back home. Um uh, then becomes like a bit of a, 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 a perder on any interviews as well but they did the interview and to be honest they were they were very robust as well in many ways and I started off by saying to Steve Barkley look what is wrong with the European Union wanting some actual detail on your alternative solutions on your alternative proposals surely your accusation Steve about the uh, EC going into too molecular detail that's a quote about the alternative range surely that's fair enough they want to know it's actually going to work let's listen to what he said
0: It's reasonable for the Commission to want to protect the integrity of the single market. Uh, It's also reasonable for the Commission, like the United Kingdom, to want to guarantee the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. We are absolutely committed to that. Uh, But it's not reasonable for the Commission to ignore the fact that the UK Parliament three times has voted to reject the backstop. So what the Prime Minister has done is narrow down the remaining issues to a single issue, the issue of the backstop, Parliament has rejected it three times and so we need to work creatively and flexible with the Commission to address that point because otherwise it would require Northern Ireland to take laws over which their voters would not have a say and that wouldn't be democratic and wouldn't pass the UK Parliament. But
2: the Commission obviously has to be led to believe by the Prime Minister that we're serious about leaving on October 31st. It's something that you and the Prime Minister have said uh, many, many times as well. But given the fact that the Prime Minister appears to have lost control of Parliament, he's lost control uh, of the business of Parliament, uh, he's lost control of his own party uh, by taking 21 members out of the Parliamentary Party, and he's possibly lost control of his Cabinet as well, with, of course, Amber Rudd uh, departing in the last 24 hours. Why should the European Commission spend capital on, on coming to terms with the Prime Minister when perhaps They feel he might not be in charge of British politics.
0: Well, the UK Parliament has been against every option put before it except one which is the deal without the backstop. That is what the Prime Minister is putting forward. Uh, And in Parliament, yes, many MPs are concerned about a no deal, which is why we need to get a deal over the line. And a deal is doable by the 31st of October, but only if the backstop goes. And the key opportunity for us is to get onto a positive future relationship that builds on the strong ties we have here in Italy, between Italy and the United Kingdom and other member states. But we need to do that with a deal because a new deal outcome will be damaging, whether it's to geographic indicators, whether it's the security to issues within our relationship with Europe. So it's far better to have a deal. That's what's in our interest. But,
2: but Steve, there is a feeling amongst some of the uh, important Europeans that you and I have been speaking to here in Ambrosetti, the ones I've been speaking to are saying that the UK government hasn't uh, entered into new negotiations with new ideas. In fact, there aren't new uh, progressive discussions going on. Would you refute that?
0: I do refute that. I mean, the teams, uh, the European advisor to Prime Minister was in Brussels on Wednesday for five hours of talks, is there again on Friday. I spoke to Michel Barnier uh, on Thursday. I'm here in Italy this weekend. The Prime Minister is in Dublin on Monday. So a huge amount of effort is going into the talks. But the crux of the issue is whether a test is set that requires continued regulatory alignment in a way that the UK Parliament has rejected. So yes, let's protect the single market and its integrity, protect the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, but we need to look creatively and flexibly at the solutions in terms of Northern Ireland in order to get a deal. Because what I hear from the businesses here in Italy is they want to avoid a new deal, uh, they want to have a deal and they want the Commission to be flexible in its approach.
2: Steve Barclay talking to me in uh, international exclusive uh, from Ambrosetti. But look, we've also been talking to a lot of other people this weekend as well. I spoke to the president of the Eurogroup, the Eurozone Finance Ministers Group, of course. Uh, and I spoke to him and said, look, are you seeing progress? Are you seeing changes in the negotiating position as well? Listen in.
4: It's a structural change. I keep saying this and... I feel it uh, economically, socially, uh, politically, uh, and we must uh, allow uh, all sorts of economic change agents to adapt to, to it. And we have been doing the contrary. Uh, so uh, I think it's uh, uh, more than about time to to to, to bring clarity uh, into this process. Uh, whatever is the, the way uh, out uh, of this political crisis it's quite uh, difficult to understand uh, from external uh, side Uh, so i won't dare (laughs) commenting on that on that perspective but uh, i really uh, urge british politicians to uh, make in, introduce a little bit of clarity into this. And as far the- as
2: your concerned, and what you've seen from the leadership across Europe, you would strongly refute any suggestions from Boris Johnson and his government that there's progress being made on talks at the moment, because many Europeans are amazed that A, there are meaningful talks going on, which they don't know about, and B, that progress is being made. So you would strongly refute what the British government is saying.
4: Again, clarity is certainly is certainly uh, the, the the word to use, and uh, you're right. Uh, we don't see that uh, positive developments uh, going on. So uh, we, we really need uh, that the political scene talks to the outside world with, uh, in, a, with a, in a transparent way uh, and uh, uh, in a way that that can help us to, to sort out.
2: Really interesting, putting the two together, isn't it? That was Mario Centeno, the head of the Eurogroup. Let me just tell you else what's coming up as well. We spoke to a lot of people this weekend, including the Deputy Finance Minister of Germany. Is Germany gonna turn on the taps? Don't hold your breath, everybody. That was uh, Jurg Cookies as well. I spoke to Alexis Cyprus as well about progress and how to deal with Europe as well. Uh, get Wilders is the right and populism still alive and well. General David Petraeus on Hong Kong, Iran, and trade with China as well. Plenty more to come here from Italy.
3: Saudi Arabia's King Salman has appointed one of his sons, Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman as energy minister replacing Khalid al-Fali. The appointment comes a week after al-Fali was removed as chairman of Saudi Aramco. Prince Abdulaziz is the first royal to be appointed to the head of the energy ministry. A Saudi official said there will be no change to the kingdom's oil policy under his direction. Let's go to Hadley for more at the World Energy Congress in Abu Dhabi. Hadley, can we take that at face value when we know that the stated ambition of the crown prince is to try and get that Saudi Aramco flotation away successfully and to do so at a decent price to raise proceeds for his Vision 2030?
5: Absolutely, Karen. I mean, that is the real question, isn't it? But to answer that, I'm joined now first on CNBC by the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Energy Dan Brulette. Dan, thanks so much for joining us early in the morning here from the World Energy Congress. I want to kick off by asking you about the news that's really been circulating over the weekend. And that, of course, is the ouster of Khalid al-Falla, a real class act, someone who's been at the helm of now of not just the Saudi energy policy, but really the face of OPEC over the last few years. How do you expect this to change? Things in terms of the energy dynamic.
6: Well, in terms of the energy dynamic, I don't see very much change happening at all, Haley. To be honest, and certainly with regard to the relationship with the U.S. U.S. government in particular, uh, we've enjoyed a long, very good, very professional relationship with Mr. Al Al-Fala. We have also had the same relationship with Mr. Abdulaziz. So we don't we don't expect any any significant change in the direction of either the policy or, importantly, the relationship between Saudi Arabia and the United States.
5: Well, no, isn't it the United States because at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia and very strong U.S. ally. But at the same point, um, you know, this is a, a man, Mohammed bin Salman, who's really got to get those energy prices up if he manages to or wants to manage to achieve the Vision 2030 goals, doesn't it?
6: That's true, um, and unfortunately, and that's
5: something that the president doesn't want to see happening, particularly as we go into an election cycle. He's got a
6: very tough road ahead of him, I must say. U.S. production will continue to go up all throughout twenty nineteen, and certainly into twenty twenty. Our own EIA, the Energy Information Information Administration, uh, is projecting that we'll see at least thirteen million barrels per day produced in the United States by the end of this year, and that could go up slightly to thirteen point five in twenty twenty. So that'll have a, a profound impact on pricing around the world. So he does have his. Uh, he does have. It was work cut out for him if the goal is to raise, and raise the I'll call it a
5: tough act to follow, particularly with that relationship right. with the Russians, because he was really seen yeah. as the face of that relationship, the man who could really drive That's the correct. policy with the JMMC. How do you see that evolving?
6: I don't see that changing very much, to be honest. You know, as we, as we have mentioned, and others have mentioned in the press. Um, you know, Mr. Abdulaziz has had a very, very good relationship, a very senior position within, the, within his government. Uh, he knows the Russians well. I think that relationship will continue as we have seen it over the course of the last five years.
5: What are you hoping to hear from him later today?
6: What I hope to hear is uh, a little bit more about his vision for what they want to do, not only with regard to oil and gas and Saudi production of such, but uh, what, what are they going to do in renewables? What are they going to do with the rest of the energy portfolio that he is now responsible for?
5: And in terms of your own trip out to the region, you're here at the World Energy Congress. It's an opportunity, as you say, to meet with everybody, the major players in the industry, as well as government officials. But also, you'll next be heading to Egypt.
6: Mm -hmm.
5: Walk me through that.
6: Uh, well, Egypt is a very exciting place as well. We're going to so
5: see more U.S. investment there.
6: We are. I think we will. Uh, Eastern med gas is very, very important, not only to this region, but to the rest of the world, particularly Europe. So we're going to be working closely with the Egyptians, with the Israelis, others in this region who want to work with U.S. companies, who want to work with other companies to develop that gas, importantly, build the infrastructure necessary to get it to market. And that's what I'll be talking about in Egypt when I leave here today. I want to walk
5: you through our walk us through, really, the election cycle. We're coming up in an election, President Trump, of course, wants to keep those uh, oil prices low. What's your price outlook? Because at the end of the day, this is something, as we say, that is a seriously contentious issue for the United States potentially start very great Sure. Well,
6: as you know, Hadley, we, we don't we don't set our price, out. our energy policy is not designed to affect price. That's not what we do for a living. And yet it does. <laughs> and yet it does, because of our production numbers. But you know the president has an all of the above strategy. Uh, he talks often about energy dominance, and the world often asks, what does that mean? It just simply means that we're gonna produce as much energy as we can, as cleanly as we can, and as affordably as we can. And whatever happens to the world price of oil, whatever happens to the world price of whatever, electricity, it doesn't really matter, then so be it. But from America's standpoint, we're gonna continue to produce energy.
5: Excellent, Dan Boulette. Thanks so much for joining us. The U.S. Deputy Energy Secretary, live from the World Energy Congress. We're going to have more throughout the day. Guys, I'm going to hand it back to you.
1: Excellent. Thanks very much indeed, uh, Hadley, for that. Uh, We should just mention the U.S. Treasury has issued an Iran-related warning to the shipping industry. We'll hear later on from Segal Mandelka, the U.S. Treasury Undersecretary, that coming up later on in the program. And after a volatile few months, the Dow and the S&P 500 are now less than two points away from an all-time high. We'll have more on that when we come back.
3: And if you just can't get enough of Squawk Box, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. Head to app Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. Let's take a look at some of the market action. Wall Street back in the green in session Friday, at least for the Dow and the S&P, posting more gains as we saw aging up on the back of what was a soft payrolls report Friday. The market had been closely watching this data event just for more confirmation about the impact of the trade war. and We had a little bit of strength, too, in some of the private sector payrolls numbers a day earlier. So the market wanted proof in the pudding in the, the non-fund payrolls report. And that said, the number was light. 130,000 jobs created last month, down from the 150,000 that the market had pencilled in as a headline number. The unemployment rate steady at 3.7% and healthy wages at 3.2%. But even a weak number was taken as a positive by the markets. More suggestions that the Fed will do what's necessary to shore up uh, the economy. And in fact, that was reinforced by Jay Powell as he spoke on Friday, mentioning that the central bank would continue to act as appropriate to sustain economic expansion. So on markets are positive for the Dow and uh, the S&P. Now less than 2.5%. From their all-time highs, which tells you just how far we've grinded higher on these markets as well. Back-to-back positive weeks, too, for the major indices for the first time since July. A quick look at Treasuries and how this all played out for the safe haven trade. We did march up to about 160 level on the US 10-year Treasury yield. We pulled back from that level just down by about four basis points from that handle. And you can see we're slightly high in the 10-year versus the two-year. So we're about uh, what roughly three basis points in that trade, so no inversion and uh, this market on the 2 and the 10 at this point, uh, the dollar. A few headwinds as we saw some of those yields capped for the dollar, but uh, a lot of cross-currents taking place, and don't forget this week we are watching the ECB very closely for more stimulus, and that uh, has meant we've been trading around 28-month lows on the currency. We're off the 109 handle this morning as we begin the trade, 110.27, but still big risk events for the euro this week. Sterling, as we saw last week, huge roller coaster trade for that one on the Brexit developments, and more news flow to watch out for this week, 122.77 is where We start out the trading week. Dollar also trading a little bit firmer versus the uh, week, I should say, versus the Japanese yen. Yen closely watched today with some negative news flow out of the Japanese market around the economy. I want to take you to the oil and gold trade. All eyes on the developments out of Saudi Arabia. Over the weekend, the replacement of the energy minister and what that could signal for the production quotas uh, that you've seen from OPEC+. Plus. But so far, 57.18 on WTI. We have bounced more than 1% on that trade. Also with Brent as well. Gold back in favour. Bit of a safety trade this morning. It was uh, somewhat of a casualty that we saw last week. It was down for the second day in a row on Friday, posting its worst trading week in nearly two months. So the fall, almost 1%. So a clawback trade taking place on that uh, gold trade this morning. Let's get to a Asia. I want to take you to the Japanese market in particular because we did see some very weak numbers crossing the second quarter GDP as the trade war again showed that it is hurting the business investment climate. We saw the number for the second quarter revised to an annualized 1.3% rate that was close to forecast. But the weakness coming through on the CapEx number that was revised down. Don't forget we saw a preliminary number on CapEx of one percent It's gone right back to only just growing at 0.2%. So uh, the Japanese market uh, trying to weather that today. We've got uh, the Hong Kong market trading lower, some gains for the Chinese stock market and also for South Korea today. The only cause, I mentioned the ECB and all eyes later this week, and what uh, any stimulus presented from uh, the central bank for Mario Draghi could do for the stock market. But this morning you're seeing mostly green areas for the Italian market, the German market, and UK market. A little bit of a patch of uh, red, a slight weakness there in contrast for the French market so far. So, how much risk on, I think, this week, and how much is going to be due to central banks?
1: I need to congratulate you this morning. Because. Do you know why? No. Because you're Australian. Oh. And we Australia something? retained the ashes.
3: Woo-hoo.
1: So this was a game of cricket. And I won't uh, bore our audience by going into the internals of uh, the game of cricket. Right. But what was important about Sunday's session was that England came out with a strategy to just try and stay batting the whole day to try and get a draw. And the reality is they were outclassed and outplayed and outbowled. But there were a lot of... English men and women in the stands in Manchester who were hoping, hoping that ultimately England could achieve what was almost unachievable. And the reality is I think there is a line across here because quite frankly hope in sport is one thing but hoping in in investing is slightly different and I'm not sure that hope is a proper investment strategy here we are you have just told us the markets are headed higher we've had a strong session out of Asia and yet the fundamentals are really ho-hum this morning we came out of a headline jobs number on Friday that didn't look particularly fantastic okay some of the internals were acceptable but it wasn't a strong headline number the Chinese data over the weekend around imports and exports was negative it was was an indication that the trade war is having some impact. These were not good numbers. We got a triple R cut from the Chinese. Mm-hmm. The Rabobank analysis on this that'll free up 900 billion yuan of new liquidity. That is pretty much just one month of total aggregate financing. That's a drop in the ocean compared to perhaps what the Chinese economy actually needs at this point. If we're going to stimulate to get back to those six or seven percent growth numbers, hope is not an investing strategy, and I hope people who are buying the markets this morning understand why they're buying them.
3: We've seen this movie before. We've seen this type of play on the pitch before. It's a repeat of very much that you get weak economic fundamentals and you hope the central bank will step in, which stimulates the market. Therefore, you have a risk on event and stocks go higher. The only problem this time around is the, the level of ammunition. I mean, the United States is slightly different in that they did bank something uh, post-financial crisis. The other central banks have it. I mean, if you look at Japan today, the response is that uh, there are hopes in about a week's time that BOJ could do more. But do more when we've got negative rates, do more when they've tried every trick in the book to stimulate the economy. That's meant to be a positive for the stock market. Same with the ECB this week. And uh, Finally, last week, we, we had someone, a market participant around the set saying, well, this is a bit of a problem when we've got negative yields and we could be looking at a German recession. Going into recession with negative yields doesn't give you much room to, to stimulate, does it? And I think that's a problem. At what point do investors say, well, this time, could it be a little bit different if central banks don't have any room to stimulate. You know, we're expecting them to do so. But at what point does risk on get cut to the upside because central banks are tapped out? Uh,
1: John Hussman uh, has re- written a terrific piece. Uh, it's called um, Going Nowhere in an Interesting Way. And it's all about market valuations and it's all about the cycle. And the risk here is that as people hope that actually we're going to go higher from here, the reality is we may just go sideways, but with lots of ups and downs, that's going nowhere in an interesting way. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box
2: Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.